Greetings and salutations. I hope your day is both tranquil and fulfilling. I am Athanasius, and welcome back to the podcast of the Boldly Immortal. This is part two of a three-part conversation with the Audacitor, a friend of mine, and in this episode, we're talking more about the struggles of being a Christian in a pagan world, understanding the reality of how the world actually works, and what is our place, what is our responsibility within it. Uh, There's a lot of talk of the righteous king, and what is his duty, and how does he fit with all this, and how do we manage our own consciences in the public, the civic realm. It's a difficult conversation, and it was a good opportunity to hash out some ideas with a good friend of mine, so I hope you enjoyed the first part, and uh, if you'll notice, the last part of it flows right into this one, so hopefully if you just listen to that one, you know where you are. Uh, Without further ado, please enjoy part two. At what point do you draw the line where you have freedom of association or you do not, if you've implied that it is not an absolute right? Part of what the real problem is here is that is a fundamentally mistaken notion that you can separate the church and the state. And that's actually impossible. It cannot be done. It can't be done. It cannot be done. Because the state will not brook a rival power center that that says our laws are the actual light, right and correct laws. It, it will not permit that. It can't permit that. It can't permit a sort of super state or a sort of sub-state within the state that challenges it, won't obey it, etc. And so the state and the religion must be in alignment. That persisted in America in a sort of pan-Christianity when we could depend upon our own power elites in America to, to have basically the same set of morals. Or at least to say, you know, those morals are good for the citizenry, even if I feel like I can ignore all of them. Mm. <laughs> right? But now that but now that Christianity has been essentially jettisoned almost entirely by our our elites, they now see it as an enemy, right? Like we're we're gonna have people who aren't gonna be for diversity, equity, and inclusion because their their dumb book from thousands of years ago tells them it's wrong. Uh, they cannot brook that. They can't. They they cannot stand that. Right. Because and people they won't. who are people who are acting on those principles are not aligned with their their purposes, and in fact, are laying claim to a higher authority by which they can disobey. Correct. The the dictates of the secular religion. Correct. One of the ways that you can know for certain that we have had a state religion in America for a long time is to just simply ask yourself, what does every public school teach about how we got here? Evolution. Which is a theological position. It has actually no real scientific basis. Because the entire premise of evolution is that there is no God and we must have come up with some other explanation for how we all got here. And that is an untestable premise. There's no there's no experiment you can conduct with a scientific method that will bring you there. Now you people have... will look at people will look at data like, you know, archaeological data or, you know, carbon dating and stuff like that. The thing is, of course, creationists have answers for all these things. But, but you know, creationists are, you know, anti-scientific idiots, right? <laughs> and so now you get now you're beginning to uncover what is the real religion. It's a kind of blend of, you know, scientism with diversity, equity, inclusion and whatever else. Which is an odd it's an odd blend because you have on the one side this idea of objectivity 
and uh, rational processes that by which we will dissect the way the world actually works and understand it and then manipulate it to our own advantage. On the other, you have this abstract, hyper-subjective idea that whatever you feel, whatever you personally believe, then that's what we have to affirm, that your your self-identification is the, the highest of all goods in a world where there is actually no meaning, uh, you just make your own. And well, and so that tells you that certain doctrines in the um, in the official state religion are more important than other doctrines. Okay, so the the, mm. the doctrine of maximizing personal sexual pleasure is a higher doctrine than science or you know whatever else, right? This this is this is how we get the occurrence of in the height of the COVID pandemic where everyone's being told they have to get they have to get vaccinated, they have to get they have to wear masks, right? There are websites telling you how to have you know safe gay sex with a mask on during COVID and not just, not just gay sex with anybody, but with a hookup on grinder of mercy. Wow. <laughs> but that's because, that's because the sexual exceeds the authority. Yep. It's, it, it's a higher divinity than mm-hmm. the divinity of rational order and structure. It relies on that one to have everything work, but those guys are just the, the lower class. Right. It's uh you know, it's, it's uh, Asherah and the Bales, right? There's a pantheon. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's fascinating reading through Herodotus that he he has each of these uh, different groups, these these different peoples. He gives them Greek names for their gods because he recognizes, oh, this is just this is just this god, and you guys worship this god, and you don't worship these other ones. Okay, I guess I get it uh, because the, he looks at the attributes that they represent as opposed to the actual name. He just says, oh, this is this is obvious. This is what you you, you worship power. Oh, that's that's Zeus. You worship uh, pleasure. That's Bacchus, or you worship technology, that's that's the scientism. Hephaestus, he's a he's a powerful god, but he is below what would that be, Aphrodite? Or probably Bacchus, honestly, the this god yeah. of licentiousness. Oh, yeah, right. Just you oh, let's just have a party. Context. Yeah, yeah, in the current context. So that but that virtue the virtue of licentiousness exceeds the virtue of of structure and technological progress. Or or re- truth. I mean, truth. Yeah, I mean, exist. obviously, obviously, they obviously they prefer it when these things all kind of you know work in synergy with each other uh, to a degree, right? I mean, uh, whenever you're working with lies and falsehoods, it's always going to be crippled by the basic realities of how the world actually does operate and right. was made by God. But so the, the, and the cabal will always be trying to bicker for different areas to, to be in charge of the the group. You know, so it's like yeah. the. Um, the book of revelation where you've got the, the 10 heads and then one head comes up and consumes other three and that's the big head. So it's that, like that, that process is just fractally happening where one branch of one, one head of the dragon consistently wants to gain power and he's going to put some others down and then they'll rise up and everybody will fight with each other. Yeah. I, I think the thing that is frustrating for us at the moment is that right now, so many of them are actually working together and aligned. Mm. It would be perhaps better for us, right? If if all of these different factions were at war, but they're not. I'm actually like so over the pandemic. I hate to talk about it this much, but uh, never but forget. you know, that, never forget. If we can yeah, talk right. about 9/11. We can talk about COVID. All right. <laughs> but, neither one uh, of neither one of which definitely neither one of which was orchestrated by any governments. Certainly not. The entire sort of private sphere the entire public sphere you know all all the all the 
associations and organizations of you know science and medicine and like ever everything was aligned on you must do this right yeah uh, it was even it was even rather disappointing to see some some people on the right wing are kind of fond of hungary because you know victor orban doesn't you know seem to put up with a bunch of crap from you know the left-wing element in his own country right and you know they basically kind of created a situation there where uh the left wing the, his the left wing of hungary is more or less powerless but at least for the time being but I mean, even even the, the the situations for the way COVID was handled in Hungary was pretty cringe, actually. So, so then, if if that's the situation that we're in, or even if it's not, even if the heads are bickering, if you want to be, if you want what is legal to be just, you must attempt to be the most powerful head of the dragon, or to at least, if as a, the king, the king's job is to wrangle the dragon into into subjugation to justice yeah that's probably where i would like you know if we're talking about a righteous king i would just abandon that metaphor okay okay <laughs> right like he's not part of that if he's a christian he's he's uh, so he's outside but he has to deal with it he has to fight the dragon then if nothing else what you are what you are at that point is you are uh you might want to think of him as like a judge ehud one of the better ones you know caleb you become a judge, right? Like, like good kings are rare enough, or, or you know, I guess you compare it to like a David or a Hezekiah or a whatever, right? But I think the judges is better because it's a much more chaotic time, a much more fractured time, which is what we're seeing. A judge rules, Gideon rules for forty years, and Israel has peace, and then his one of his bastard sons kills all the rest of his sons, takes over, and he's a wicked tyrant, mm-hmm. right? The unfortunate truth about the world, which we already know, we already know this unfortunate truth, is that it's populated by sinners, and powerful people are tempted into sin very easily, and it takes an iron will to, and, and well, actually, more than that, <laughs> that that's wrong. It, it, it does not take an iron will, because your will cannot be iron enough. It takes the, it means being a son of Solomon. <laughs> to, to be a righteous king, you have to seek wisdom from uh, from the Lord, you have to be so deeply steeped in what His Word says and what is good and true and beautiful according to God that it just comes off your lips and it's uh, bouncing around in your heart and in your mind all the time. And if you if you aren't that person, you know, I mean, even even Hezekiah has his moments of stumbling, right? So if you aren't that person, uh, then it's going to be too much for for most. It's going to be too much for for all of them if if they don't have God's Word. What you end up with is these kind of periods of goodness that are more like little interruptions to the downward spiral that the world is going into. We may get one of those again, right? Uh, One thing that is sort of hopeful for me is that it's just sort of think on a longer term uh, basis uh, about the story of Russia right now. Mm -hmm. So you had the, the Soviet Union, which reigned for about 80 years, two generations. Um, two kings. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, uh, I mean, obviously, they had a few more um, premieres yeah, than yeah, that. I guess but... the, the, the bad kings never quite last as long. <laughs> well, right. I mean, the problem is, you know, for them, they, they kept like, it was always, after Stalin, it was always like some really old codger, right? Uh, mm. I guess Khrushchev lasted for a little while, but after Khrushchev especially, it was always some like, you know, old guy who, career for like three years and then he died or something like that right? but, um, so it reigned for 80 years 
And it was a evil atheist regime that brought misery to millions and actively killed millions. It all comes crashing down in on itself from the weight of its own evil. And then there's this period of, I'm just going to call it kind of like chaos. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, living in Russia at that time was like living in the middle of a Fallout video game or something like that. But it, it was just sort of like, they, they were directionless in a lot of ways, or, or it wasn't clear where they were going to go, right? And then Putin takes over, and I'm not even sure he knew what he was going to do at first. I mean, or at least there wasn't strong messaging coming from Russia at first, right? Other than just him being a strong man, running the place. But their story has very clearly, in the last 10 years, their story has very clearly become, whether, whether people want to agree with this or not, like I'm not saying you should take Russia's side in the current conflict or whatever, you know, I'm, that's not my point. But Russia's story has become, we are the last great hope for Christianity in the world because the West is a decadent, disgusting, evil slop put of immorality. And they're going to lose it. And I think that is rather, is rather fascinating, isn't it? To, to, to go from atheism and reviling the idea of there even being a god to now Russia tells itself that they are the last best hope of Christianity in the world. Now, I'm not saying you have to believe that story. You have to think that's correct. I'm not saying you have to believe that Putin is himself a very devout Christian. I'm not sure that he is one way or the other. I, I think that his government has certainly done some things that would in, would not be Congress with uh, Christian activity, you know, uh, poisoning reporters with uh, radioactive material and stuff like that. But it's still a remarkable transfer, transformation. It could happen here too. But the Soviet Union had to get to some pretty dark depths first. We may have to. We we may not be at the bottom yet. Yeah. Here, but it that that reminds me honestly of the story of uh, Josiah. I think you you have other kings who are not great, but Josiah's particular uh, discoveries are he's ruling for a little while, and then they discover the Bible. And wow, this is amazing. And there's a revival of of the faith and, and the faithful. And they keep the Passover with, with such fervor as it had not been kept since the days of Solomon, I think is the is the is what the text says. And it's his son, uh, Zedekiah, who is blinded because he rebels against the king of Babylon. And he's blinded after he watches his two sons or his, all of his children killed. Right. Um, and he's dragged off to Babylon, but the the remnant in Babylon that is faithful is faithful be, is faithful possibly because of the reforms of Josiah, and and yeah, probably he's he's permitting it, he's encouraging it, and it, it doesn't matter that the nobles maybe don't fully believe it and they don't fully buy into it. There are enough, and the ones who are redeemed through it are those who are who who hold to the Reformation, and this is what. Pastor Fisk had preached about on Reformation Sunday a little bit that that's that is what Reformation is, and whether our destiny is to reform in the ways of somebody more like uh, Jehoshaphat who's kind of pulling back from his scientist scientism following father Asa who calls the doctors instead of praying uh, for healing. Not that he couldn't call the doctors, but he's supposed to pray, and that's the whole point. So Jehoshaphat seems to have a bit of a revival, but he has syncretistic tendencies and. Uh, 
Josiah has a bit of a revival after Athalia, but then kills his half adopted brother sort of thing. It, whether we're the the ones who repent and then get 40 more years or so, or whether we're the ones who are going to be taken into captivity. I mean, that's with Russia, the demographics are not, not in their favor. There is a hungry and demographically stable Chechenian population that just has to maybe wait out a little bit longer and Russia consumes itself. I hope not though. If, if they become this actual bastion of Christian virtue, standing there in the East and, and holding back something, maybe not holding an empire, but giving another generation a chance to do something righteous, that that would be good. So maybe that's us. Maybe that's not the, the point there is whether or not you achieve success, the remnant will be preserved as long as you repent. So we're, we're just being tempered in the moment whether we we end up seeing it in our lifetime or not, I, the wickedness. I assume what you're saying is the wickedness is going to be overthrown. It can't endure. Its own folly will tear it down. Absolutely, that is absolutely what I'm saying. That it, it's what we pray in the Psalms. That don't let the rich, don't let the don't let the wicked rule. So that take take the scepter of rule away from them, so that the the righteous would not be brought into it. Right. It's exactly that. That that. Any wicked regime will ultimately be toppled by God, but it doesn't happen on the timeline that we might prefer necessarily. So, and it doesn't. It's not. It's not. It's not easy. It's not a video game. It's not a movie uh, or TV series or you know. It's there can be real suffering. There can be real atrocity. In the meantime, I don't know. I don't want. To, I don't want to be overly dramatic right but it's not clear to me one way or the other that i will be able to live out the rest of my days as a pastor without being thrown in jail or without my family being threatened it's not clear to me i pray you know certainly that i don't have to necessarily face those dangers but it like it, it it's not clear to me that that's going to be the way it is we are recording this at a time when some people think that we are closer to nuclear war than we've ever been i mean now there's a sort of tendency towards Never let a good crisis go to waste, as uh, one person said, right? So I I don't personally know how seriously to take that, okay? But I would say, obviously, the United States is at war with Russia. We're doing it through a proxy state. Yeah, yeah. But we are giving them money. We're now giving them tanks. Their next request is for fighters. Oh, guess what? They can't drive our tanks. They don't know how. So, ah, well, you know... We're not really at war with Russia. We just have our tanks that are being driven by our people under the command of the Ukrainian military. Like, what? We're <laughs> and we're not at war. Oh, right. right sure, we're not right. at war. Because that would, be, uh, that would be war. That would be bad. That would be war, right? That would be bad. We don't go to war. Uh, <laughs> so I would say, yeah, th- there's definitely, uh, there are definitely a series of logical, logical, if you will, decisions in which a nuclear bomb gets launched. Why not? There might be rights, lots of reasons why not, but I mean, it's, people still make uh, calculations that end up being bad ones, or maybe the right ones, and those kind of things could happen. Mm-hmm. And so maybe, maybe I'll never have to worry about being arrested as a pastor. Maybe what I'll have to worry about is that uh, you know several of our major cities get blown up, and we have to wonder if we're going to have enough food to make it through the winter in the near future. I mean, not, not honestly, this winter, but 
yeah, I I had the power go out. We had a pretty bad ice storm come through. We were without power for a couple days. And that alone uh, revealed some of the fragility of the system that we have. That couple more days of that and any food I have in the house is going bad. Yep. It is cold. Um, thanks yep. be to God, the weather was cooperative. You know, It was good and nothing, no lasting damage occurred. But an attack on the, the power lines, if we're, say we get a worse storm in three years where the power's out for a week because nobody can get in, now what? You know, that the yeah. electric heating is all we've got. Maybe, you know, get a generator. Okay, well, good. Now we've got the generator. Maybe there's a maybe there's a green movement that takes down the, the gas lines because gas is bad and we need to move away from fossil fuels because electric's the way to go. And then it all falls apart. It, there's there's no there's no telling. There's no end to the number of possible tragedies that life can bring forth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean unless the unless the uh, unless the Lord builds the house, the builder builds in vain. Amen. Uh, Unless the Lord, Lord watches over the city, the watchman watches in vain. So th- there's no way that if it is assigned to us to receive judgment in a particular way, it's going to come one way or the other. And there's nothing that the regime can do about it. And in, in a sense, you know, anybody who might be involved in causing that to happen over here is not uh, acting solely on their own wishes. That section does not contradict any of the other sections about how elites come into power and what they do and how how power operates it simply lets us know when evil is overthrown we need to look at that and rejoice and if the man who is going to step up is a christian like that's that's a good work for him to do for him to step up and try to beat down evil god will work through him to do that so taking taking up the scepter that god gives you to destroy the wicked is not uh is not a bad thing in fact it's a responsibility if you are given the scepter. Yeah. So I would look at it this way, that sound political theory and or, or, or a sound theory of politics, a sound theory of power is simply looking at how is how have these things worked in the past consistently? Okay. And saying, okay, if that's the way that power actually works, then... Power is not itself a sinful thing. The words power, the word the word power, the word politics, these tend to be dirty words in American culture and I think among Christian congregations oftentimes as well. It often is used as an insult even in, I mean, it's like almost kind of like ridiculous, right? Politicians talking about political machinations say, he's just playing politics. <laughs> yes, yes, that's exactly yeah. what he's doing. Yeah. Um, right? <laughs> The thing to realize about those things is that any group of human beings will organize around a leader who will have power. Any group of or, uh, human beings that have to make decisions about how to handle things are going to exercise politics on some level or another. Okay, And uh, these things cannot be evil because, in fact, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Right. So power is not intrinsically evil. Politics isn't intrinsically evil it is these things become evil or are tinged with evil because we are evil so the good man when i say the good man i mean the believer in jesus christ the the right one who is made righteous by the blood of jesus amen he has to live in a state of repentance but he's also called if he has a position of leadership and power he is called to use that i mean exactly as we say in the song of solomon 
book, right? Power is given from above to those below for those further below still, right? And so his goal is to use that power in a godly way that uplifts others and points them to their savior, uh, that, that provides for their needs, uh, that uh, protects them from evil men who would harm them. And for people with power or authority to not do that is a sin. It is a sin. And that's a crucial thing to keep in mind that, you know, if you are, if you are a member of a church council and you're just, I was going to say asleep at the wheel, but I don't want to sound insulting because I want people to really think about it without just getting turned off right away. If you're, if you're a part of a church council and you are, you are beating yourself up already because you're like, man, I show up to this meeting once a month, but otherwise I don't do much. Right. I would say, go to Jesus, be forgiven. Now do something good with that power because it's been given to you as a guilt. The Lord has entrusted you with that. Don't waste it. This is like the don't, parable. Don't waste it. Don't waste it by spending it on yourself. Don't waste it by being negligent with your power, but use it. Spend that power for the good of others. That's what that's what it's there for. So it's like the parable of the talents. Yes. And what you're given is given for you to do something with it. I, I like that idea that the the investing in the, with the bankers idea because he throws that in there and it I, otherwise I'm like wait a second why why does Jesus include this little anecdote but that's that there's a minimum that you could do with what you've been given and it seems like it's you know, invest it into the next generation so that they have a little more than you do so, so there's a baseline and you can go below the baseline right. in just <laughs> just well I, you know something could happen I don't know. I might get in trouble. It's 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 with the fear of it that as if it can't, it isn't going to bear fruit as if we aren't, as if providence isn't real. That, that's that been, I guess, an encouraging thought that all of the, the whole system could have fallen apart any number of ways over the last 100 years, 150 years, 6,000 years. Catastrophe seems very self-evidently possible, but providence has made it so that we don't have we haven't fallen apart completely you know that the power still is on and we're still able to have this conversation so it doesn't mean that we can all sit you know, sit at the wheel and say well god will keep the power on forever and we don't have to do anything and we can just let the institutions be what they will be and everything will be okay there's there's that tension between waiting on the lord to do the work and also doing the work that you have in front of you because that's how he does his, how he's working to serve your neighbors is through you. Yeah, yeah. And I, I got a little bit sidetracked on an example there. So what I was really trying to do is go back to what you were saying originally about um, you know, power and the use of power and whatnot and, and, and trying mm -hmm. to just kind of build it up from a Christian perspective, from a perspective focused on this is a gift from God to use to give to others, right? And so you were talking about how these principles are not contradicted by God's power. I would say generally God works through means, okay, right? So he doesn't just like miraculously fill your larders with bread, right? You work for it. You go to the grocery store. You make a decision about which brand to buy or, you know, the cost of the bread that you're going to purchase, right? You, you bring it home. You eat it before it goes bad, right? These are all means through which God nourishes you and your family 
And so the same thing is true with power. This is a means through which God provides for, protects, guides, and leads people. Obviously, sinful men want to get in the middle there and push God out and do it their own way. And often that leads to disaster, which again is why the Bible is so critical of bad leaders. But is it possible that God could completely circumvent you know, the normal channels and means of power? Well, yes, obviously, because he's God, right? <laughs> uh, if he wants to do something that is outside of the normal way these things work, he certainly can, and he uh, almost certainly has in uh, the history of the world, right? Well, for instance, I would say Cyrus deciding to just give the Jews their nation back. That makes no sense in, in you know, this sort of classical Italian elite theory. Hmm. Uh, here, let me create another potential rival castle just because out of the goodness of my heart, right? Um, now, you know, the elite theorists might say, well, no, actually what he was doing was, you know, creating a kind of a client state that would be loyal to him because he was so good to them. But I mean, that's not really the way it played out. So, so uh, there's a reason they destroyed that over and over and over again. You know, as, as much right. as the, Babylon just said, no, we're not dealing with this again. It's not right. worth the trouble. And Cyrus just says, right. yeah, sure, you go ahead, do it. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, lots of people had learned to their, uh, you know, frustration that, that that that's a stubborn and stiff-necked people, as God Himself called them. And yeah, you're right. The Babylonians were just done. They they raised the place. Cyrus put it back up. The Romans later were more disposed of the Babylonian mindset and raised the place too. So, <laughs> so, so you can. There are there are times where the the system doesn't work quite the way that it normally would be expected to work, where you can maybe see the hand of providence at work. Yeah. But broadly speaking, living with invocation and actually owning that vocation fully, you know, what are you supposed to do for what you're supposed to do with the power that you've been given? Do it. Uh, yep. Put your hand to the plow and then don't take it off. So, okay. Yeah, maybe 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 extending the analogy of the, you know, the bread in your larder would be that, you know, usually God works through the means of the sweat of your own brow, but maybe without your prompting or asking or whatever in a time of hardship, somebody comes to you and says, Hey, thanks for doing that thing for me, you know, nine months ago. Here's here's a hundred dollars, right? And they just give it to you because they're thankful, and grateful, right? And then you're like, wow, that's exactly what I needed, right? So, so I guess I, my my next thought is the question of how far do you take living in Christian vocation? So if you're a principal who's a Christian, mm -hmm. how far do you wield your power, knowing that they're going to kick you out? How far do you uh, say the the student body is not permitted to do X, Y, and Z, and then do you just do you just suffer the persecution and they kick you out and you try again? Oh, I see. I think that's a pretty situational question, okay. right? The thing about vacation is that it's almost never easy and neat. I mean, I shouldn't say it's almost never, but there's certainly plenty of situations in which it is not easy and neat, right? So this isn't really exactly what your question is getting at, but... If you just think about it, any individual person and the number of vocations they have, and then you ask, okay, in a 24-hour day, which vocations come first? And scripture does give us some guidance on that, right? So when Paul writes to Timothy and he says, you know, uh, whoever does not uh, care for the needs of his own family is worse than an unbeliever, right? And, and so that would tell us right away, okay, well, those closest to you are the ones you have the highest priority to. And so when there's only so much time in a 24-hour day, you need to get some sleep too, you exercise first the vocations that serve the people that are closest to you, and then the next concentric circle, and then the next concentric circle, right? And so the amount of the amount of effort and time you're going to be able to devote to the furthest concentric circles is going to be obviously as a percentage 
less, right? Uh, maybe quite a bit less. Okay. Now narrow that same idea down to just one vocation and say, in this vocation, there may be any number of people that I'm responsible to, and I have to make a decision in a particular case as to how how best to meet the most important responsibilities and, and as, as far as I can, all the responsibilities that I have. It's at least theoretically possible that there are some hills you don't want to die on for the good of defending the other hills. Okay. So then the guy who says, I will compromise this not very strong conviction that I have, or, or perhaps I don't have to do anything and I'm not allowing the most injustice, but I have to, I have to Naaman. I, I have to go into the temple of Dagon because that's where my master goes. I don't, I don't mean to pray to him, but by being, by, if I reject this, my entire family is going to be you know, destroyed. I mean, my position is gone and any good that I could do as the commander in chief of the armies of Syria is wiped out. So, so there's the tension there of well, how do you do your good when you live among the heathens? Yeah, uh, hmm. that, that that is that is an excellent example, and and uh, it's so excellent. I wish I had thought of it first, but <laughs> uh, yeah, the thing is, of course, that this is something that is to be done with, with fear and trembling, because our sinful hearts are not always best. We are not perfect judges of how to handle these things, and worse than that. Our simple hearts will want to tell us, no, you did that just right, even when perhaps we did it just wrong. Much prayer is needed. Much Bible study is needed. Mm -hmm. Perhaps sometimes much repentance. So there's a tension of patience. I'm thinking back to the real beginning of the conversation where we're talking about the uh, the left and the right, and the right just has a tendency to throw up its hands and say, all right, you know, I'm just going to. I'm moving to Idaho because Idaho is a safe place where we can just be in our own safe space and be good, independent people together. Uh, yeah. That, that's the tendency. And, and in a, to a certain extent, one, they're not going to leave it to you. Two, whatever you build is going to, is going to be built by sinners and you're going to have to struggle against that reality. You know, the people from California are going to still be people from California and the people from Idaho aren't saints. They're not perfect. So there's there's that edge of it, and the other edge seems to be you don't have to throw up your hands because you're surrounded by people who don't believe what you believe. You could be a Christian who works as a diversity, equity, and inclusion officer and tries to actually pursue good ends in that role. It would be tough because it's a religion, but you could do it if that feeds your family and allows you to support actual justice. Or is that too far? That's an interesting specific example. Without going into any more specifics. Man, I don't know. The, the problem is knowing what a you know diversity, equity, inclusion officer does, by definition, is, like you said, it's they're basically a cleric or a priest of a false god. So you can't really have that position, <laughs> I don't think. Uh, now... At least in theory, you could try to subvert the position, but then you have to ask yourself, is subverting in a secretive and deceptive way itself not compatible with Christian ethics and morals? And that's a little bit, a big part of me just wants to say, yeah, it's not. But you know, I'm willing to entertain ideas that it's 
possible, right? I mean, like, let's take this out of the realm of, of you know, sort of politics and, and whatnot and talk about, like, can you be a Christian and be an undercover police officer who helps sell drugs, who helps hook people up with prostitutes, who stands by while child trafficking is happening so that you can get the bigger fish? Can you do that? It's a tough question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I I don't I don't know I don't I don't think I could, but I'm I don't not, think I could either. I'm not willing to, you know, find the guy who does, you know, let's say, go through that and then, yeah, I don't know. He at a certain point, it's tough. I can see how a a Christian man could do it, but I could see how it would just tear his conscience apart. I'm not, I want to be really clear. I'm not saying it is okay or it's not okay one way or the other. I'm saying I haven't thought it through hard enough or, th- or, or gone all the way down to the bottom of every principle here to really come to a good answer. Mm. Uh, I'm just posing it as an example of can a Christian engage in subterfuge and subversion and deception in good conscience? And You mentioned Ehud earlier. And there's all kinds of things you would have to do as a diversity, equity, inclusion officer in order to stay in that job to try and subvert it that would just make your skin crawl. Yeah. And, and I mean, you mentioned Ehud earlier. He definitely has deception. He's a left-handed man. Uh, right. Uh, with all of the implications that, that go along with it. Um, so he, in his left-handedness, uh, crafts this dagger and puts it on his thigh and then goes to the, uh, I can't remember his name, the fat guy, though. King of Moab goes over there and he goes into his place and tell hello. He tells him like, "Hey, don't 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 open the door because you know he's he's doing something else," and, and and then kills him. And they all assume that he's relieving himself. And so you know he just he takes some time and yeah, he'll be out eventually. And oh, okay, and, and so he's off. So there's there's subterfuge that does happen, but it's it there's a lot more directness to it, and and there's a lot more straightforwardness and it, I guess that that idea of Naaman as well again the conscience is a tough thing to deal with so how the confidence of of baptism is a wonderful thing but it, it it's hard and and at a certain point I, I suppose the righteous king's goal would be to make it so you don't have to do that and to find another way to take down the big guy um, other than putting people in positions where they have to compromise their own their own morality or 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 at least struggle with their own flesh that that should be a pursuit yeah yeah i i mean these things are hard enough you know i know of people who are forced to watch certain things that are awful to have to watch because the juries aren't allowed to see them the judge is not allowed to see them and it messes with people who have to do that and that's not even that's not even undercover in those situations. That's just after the fact. You're dealing with those things is, you know, pretty unbelievable. We go off on a whole another tangent about, uh, you know, maybe there's a lot to learn from uh, a lot of. I'm not saying that you that every Christian society must do these things. Jesus has finished our salvation on the cross. There is there is no particular set of civil laws that we must adhere to, but maybe there's a lot of wisdom to learn from the civil laws and to just say certain certain things are punishable by death. And maybe then we'd have a lot less of them. Hmm. 
it gets to the it gets to the question of the righteous king. What's his goal? What or what's his not goal? What is his responsibility to justice? Yeah. And then somebody's going to come in with statistics right about. Well, actually, uh, the death penalty doesn't deter anyone from you know whatever. Um, uh, yes, I understand. There's a whole set of interconnected uh, social dysfunctions uh, that have been perpetrated upon our uh, society and culture. I get it. Uh, you have to fix all of them at once. Uh, things are as bad as they are because they all exist here at once. So, right. And so it, within the, within the realm that you, the set of vocation that you have, you have to address what's the most important fight to fight and at a certain point trust that if you can't handle it just move on I don't usually put anything at this point, but you clearly stuck around. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you want to talk about this topic or similar topics, or just meet other like-minded Christian individuals, the Sons of Solomon Muster in Rockford, Illinois, is on Memorial Day this year. So check your calendars, and if you're interested or want more information, reach out to sos.113.487 at gmail.com sos.113.487 at gmail.com. I hope to see you there.